Sister Anissa Diab, thank you so much for accepting our invitation to be on the podcast. Walaikum assalam and thank you for having me. It's it's a real honor and pleasure. Alhamdulillah, it's a, it's an honor for, for me to have you on the podcast with me. Um, I wanted to start because you're in the States and here in Australia right now and on and all of the groups that I'm involved in, the issue of George Floyd and the police killing this innocent person is is kind of becoming viral, obviously, as it should. And I mm-hmm. wanted to get your feedback on what's happening there in the States right now. Yeah, it's it's a huge problem. And it's been an ongoing issue where we have young black men dying at the hands of uh, our law enforcement. And I think there's so much outrage because this continues to happen again and again and again, where, you know, people are saying, I can't breathe and just being killed on the spot. And so what we're seeing right now in Minnesota is a lot of, um, now I wouldn't call it riots, I would call it a, a uprising and protest against the lack of accountability um, with law enforcement and the, the oppression that we're, that's been ongoing and is just really getting filmed and, and more attention um, because of the access to you know, the phones and you know, on the spot you can get the evidence, but it's been going on for a long time and it's, um, it's, it's just disturbing. It's, it's really disgusting and disturbing. And uh, today they, they had some reporters that were even being arrested from CNN who were filming um, at the so there's there's a lot of oppression happening in our country right now, and you would just think that this pandemic um, would sort of help people put things into perspective and think twice about um, treating others with oppression and, and racism. But unfortunately, um, people are still engaging in these these murderous crimes. Yeah, and, and I noticed you mentioned how it's ongoing and every few months something pops up and I'm sure it happens much more often than every few months, but every few months, one case will go onto the media for a little bit and then kind of gets forgotten. So mm-hmm. I, know, I know even in Minnesota, this isn't the first time. Um, I forgot the brother's name. There was, there was another one that was killed recently within the last few years. And yeah, I, I can't, I can't recall the name either, but yeah. I picture his face and, yeah. um, yeah, and that that's what's getting filmed, right? Imagine yeah, what isn't. Exactly. So That's crazy. It's what do you think is going to happen? I remember in uh, Los Angeles after mm-hmm. the Rodney King decision and he was like the cops who beat him up were let off and then there were some riots, I think way back in like 96. I remember I was in LA at the time. I remember those. And I saw here in Minnesota, they did charge the police with the third degree murder, which seems like that's mm-hmm. a little a little low still, but at least he's charged with something. But do you think there's going to be continuing um, uprising? And do you think it's going to create a change or it's just going to go back to the status quo? It's hard to say because, you know, this uh, similar things have happened before and you see a lot of outrage on social media and people speaking up. And then it just, 
you know, it's, it dies down for a while and then, then it continues over and over and over again. So I would like to say I'm, I'm hopeful and I, I think that it's good people who are witnessing these things that need to speak up and we need to recognize how we may be contributing to the problem by not speaking up when we hear of, you know, covert or overt forms of, of racism. So it's it's really our Islamic obligation to to speak out against the injustice and try to, if we can, change it with our hands and speak out against it and, and do something about it. But um, it's hard to say what's going to happen at this point. We have a very Oh, um, unpredictable administration right now. And there's a lot of tweets about different responses that the president mm-hmm. is taking. And mm-hmm. um, who knows yeah. at this point? We'll see if he escalates the situation. It seems like he, he's thinking about doing that. We'll see if he gets talked out of it. Yeah. Or not. That would, um, it, yeah. it would be terrible, but then it would also shed light on on you know the American form of suppression and oppression that they do on an everyday mm-hmm. basis, so the world will just mm-hmm. be more informed of it. Um, I noticed that you do a lot of work with Islamophobia, and, and oppression is oppression, obviously. And as Muslims, as you said, it's our duty to stand up to oppression against whoever it is. It doesn't matter if the victims are Muslim or not. We should be mm-hmm. standing up, and we should be raising awareness and doing what we can to try to eradicate oppression from everywhere. But I noticed mm-hmm. that with, with Islamophobia, which is another form of oppression that, that is occurring, you're also active in that arena, in that, that field. Um, what is it like for Muslims in America right now? And you know, what kind of Islamophobia incidents are, being, are, are becoming the norm there? Mm-hmm. Well, right now things have... Of course, with the pandemic, everything's been more virtual with the schools, and so we're not hearing as much of the the school-based bullying and Islamophobia that we typically hear of. But for most American children growing up in this country, uh, one out of three is fearful of identifying as Muslim and will often talk about school staff members who are bullying them in, in, in the school place. So it's not just peers, but also teachers and uh, targeting them as well. And what I, I grew up in 9-11. Um, so I was, you know, starting to wear hijab my second year in high school. And during that time, it was about two years after 9-11. And for for me, it was very difficult growing up in that atmosphere. I lived in a small town. I was the only one in my school wearing hijab, and I found myself very much so targeted by by certain people. And there were a lot of people that also supported me, but quite a few that just had a lot of misconceptions around Islam. So I think it's it's a real challenge when you're dealing with the ignorance that people are being misinformed with, and it's our job to try to educate them as much as possible, and and not just through words, but through actions. And so whenever these situations would arise, I would just, I would try to talk to the person, try to give them the brochure. Have you actually read the Quran? Here's a Quran. Um, And that really sparked the desire to want to go out and do more interfaith work and try to help the community develop a better understanding of Islam. That's great. That's great. What kind of interfaith work do you do? 
So I do mostly um, work with the chaplains, uh, chaplaincy, the local chaplaincy here in New York. Mm. Um, I do a lot of work with, we have a Muslim student life here at uh, the local university. So Mm -hmm. we'll do like understanding Islam series uh, each semester and and have non-Muslims come out. Mm -hmm. And it's, alhamdulillah, it's been a great opportunity. Over the years, I think people have become a lot more open. And that's the one good thing about um, just, I mean, it was a disgusting thing that happened on 9-11, but if there was any benefit, I think more people are informed about Islam and interested in Islam. And Mm -hmm. More and more, so yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. I see that as well. Like I remember, actually, when nine eleven happened, I was in Lebanon. I was studying uh, my mm-hmm. first year of Hausa in Lebanon at that time, and then I moved to Iran afterwards. But uh, I remember being not being in the states at that time, and obviously before nine eleven, there's some talk of Islam, and there was some, you know, there was some discrimination that happened, but Muslims were pretty much unknown you know i um i remember for instance just uh i wasn't born muslim i converted to islam when i was a teenager i didn't know many muslims at all i didn't know anything about the you know arab cultures or or other cultures of muslim countries and it was just something funny i was talking to my friends about this i remember walking by and someone was smoking an argili or shisha or hookah whatever you call it and in the front yard and I was with my friends and we saw him and we're like wow this guy's just doing drugs right in the front yard and no one cares he's just like we had no idea and then now obviously there's you know Argilis everywhere and everyone knows what it is and it's just from from the attention that's given to Muslims negative attention and also the culture and everything else becomes more known and I think the rate of conversion or reversion to Islam has increased dramatically over these these years. And I can see now, almost everywhere I go, I see Muslims, people ask questions about Islam. It's, it's amazing that, you know, from a negative incident, you could have such positives. Mm-hmm. No, that's for sure. And I think it's a beautiful story you mentioned because it forced us in a lot of ways as Muslims to learn more about our identity and about our religion because you now you have people coming and asking questions and mm-hmm. how are you explain your faith if you you know don't have a good understanding yourself so it i think in many ways it forced muslims into a spiritual crisis but for the best and mm-hmm. it not only us but it helps others around us as well develop a better understanding and appreciation definitely definitely i know I- I'm in the car here, and the sun is shining right down on my face. I don't know. Um, I had to come. I, I, I was mentioning to you before we started, my wife is getting ready for work, and it's our house isn't that big, so it make all kinds of noise, and I wouldn't be able to do this, so I had to go out of the house. I wanted to go to a park, and I was actually, I played basketball before I was talking to you, and I was going to set up in the park and do it there with a nice background. But now there's all kinds of people in the park and making all kinds of noise, dogs running everywhere and can't do it there either. So we're in the car. That's all right. No worries. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. So one of the, the main reasons I invited you is because of the work you do in um, counseling and psychology. And one of the purposes of this podcast, so I... I interview Islamic scholars as well, but one aspect is trying to interview 
um, psychologists and counselors and people who work in the mental health field from the community. Because I think it's one of the things is this huge stigma that we have in the community of people seeking professional help when they're experiencing different types of mental illnesses or difficulties. And I see that this is something that that needs to change and hopefully we can help educate people and bring awareness to the to this domain basically. Um, one of the things I like doing as well is looking at how we can kind of intertwine religion and counseling. Because I've seen like through my studies in both fields, in Hausa and in psychology, that there are there's there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that we could kind of add religion into psychology and try to help people from a faith-based perspective, but also something that's empirically validated and that there's evidence behind it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed that you do your counseling, you, you call your counseling faith-based counseling, which is great. Mm -hmm. And you, you have a course um, through the Tasneem Institute where the second lesson was called Overcoming Obstacles Using Islamic Psychology. So I wanted to ask you, what, what does Islamic psychology look like for you? And what is faith-based intervention for you? Mm -hmm. So Islamic psychology, I think they both, Islam and psychology go very well together, as, as you were saying. And I think we need to both understand how our minds work, as well as have a develop a spiritual framework and a sense of purpose and meaning in life in order to overcome obstacles and difficulties. And in my work before, when I was uh, as a therapist on a college campus, you know, I was working with non-Muslims, um, very few Muslims, but we couldn't really delve very deeply into the topic of spirituality, aside from me talking about some meditative practices or just exploring, um, you know, how do you make meaning in life? But I felt very restricted in, in terms of being able to explore spirituality more with clients. And when I began doing mental health advocacy work about 10 years ago, I ran a suicide prevention program. It was also a program designed to uh, address mental health stigma in the community. And I would go into the massage and I, I remember I was a little nervous about the topic at the time mm. because this kind of new territory mental health wasn't a big hot topic at that point yep. and so I went in you know a bunch of uncles bunch of you know elderly you know community members and I remember thinking oh my goodness I don't know if they're going to be open to this mm. but I talked about you know the stigma that mm. we see in the mental health community and not just like, you know, there's certainly stigma in the non-Muslim community, but there is a lot more in the Muslim community, I find, than in the non-Muslim community. So, um, you know, whether it's the belief that, you know, you're crazy, you're psychotic for getting help, there's um, that depression is a weakness of faith, mm -hmm. that, you're, you know, you're possessed by a jinn, mm -hmm. that just you know, academically, if you're doing well, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, you know, just if you're having mental health issues, you should just get married. That's that'll solve all your problems. <laughs> so it's it, there's a lot. It, there's a lot of um, 
you know, just faulty belief systems with regard to seeking help and how, you know, talk, they talk a lot about in the community, oh, you know, if you have a problem, just go to Allah and seek help only mm. to him for that problem. And yeah. it's like if you have a broken leg, you, you know, you don't tell that person, just raise your hand and ask Allah to heal your broken mm -hmm. leg. You tell the person, you know, go to a specialist, go to an expert. And mm. even in Quran, the Quran talks about, you know, ask those who are not mm -hmm. of knowledge, ask the experts. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do as a community is, is recognize that Allah puts certain people and, you know, professionals in our community to help us. And they're just one tool, you know, towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that dua, prayer, um, Quran, all of that is shifa and rahmah and healing for, mm. for mankind. But also we need to understand how, why, why it is we act the way we act. Why is my, why do I feel the way I feel? Why am I behaving this way towards my family or my friends? Why am I not functioning at the level I should be at work? Um, these are answers that you can get through the therapy. And I love in Arabic, you know, the, therapy, uh, the psych field of psychology is called ilm al-nafs, right? Yep. The, the knowledge of the self. Yep. And I think it's beautiful because that's what Islam is all about. Mm. It's about yourself so that you can know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the prophet would say. So for me, it's been a pleasure, a real honor that when I now have my practice and I'm working with almost some clients right now all over the world, I see it as a very sacred space where, you know, I understand that not all of my clients are going to be very practicing Muslims. Um, and some of them are going to be really confused about their identity and where they lie. But what's very interesting is that at some point, all of them begin to, to show interest in getting back into their faith or improving in some way. And they begin to kind how their relationship with themselves also sets the tone for their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well. And it's, it just goes hand in hand. So my approach with it in, in working with the Muslim clients in particular is, you know, it starts at the assessment point. Um, and I ask questions a lot about spirituality. Well, talk to me about your relationship with Allah. Talk to me about how your relationship may have evolved over time. Um, I even have my clients rate on a scale of one to 10. Um, where is your relationship at with Allah right now with 10 being the highest? Yeah. If it is that low, why is it so low? And what are some things that you would do differently to get that higher? Is that something that you wanna work on? How important is Islam to you? So right at the get-go, I set the tone that, you know, this is gonna be part of the conversation. And some people want to delve more into their faith and, and some people um, prefer to just keep it on a surface level. But I use a cognitive behavioral approach. So it, I find that goes really well with Islamic teachings because Imam Ali would talk about the importance of um, really taking account of your thoughts, to keep your thoughts as pure as water and mm -hmm. to 
to just account for it, to have that monitoring system going on. So cognitive behaviorals, as you probably already know, it's, it's all about looking at how your thoughts affect your feelings, the feelings affect behavior, the behavior reinforces the thinking. So when you can identify what kinds of thoughts are irrational, unhelpful, um, getting in the way of your goals, getting in the way in your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's it's like a, a light bulb begins to click yeah, and it all starts. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was. It worked and it. Yeah. I was mm -hmm. with CBT. I was. I, I haven't really started to think of how I could integrate um, Islam into the, you know, the overarching principles of CBT. Some of the some of the minor aspects of it. Yeah. But I was looking more mm -hmm. into positive psychology and how positive psychology kind of marries with Islam. And there's a lot of integration there. Like a whole bunch of integration, um, which is very interesting. That that hadith you mentioned from Imam Ali Islam to keep your thoughts as pure as water. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you said a lot there, there was a lot of a lot of interesting things you mentioned. Um, one of the one of them was about just help seeking behavior and why people don't go to seek help. So you mentioned getting people to say, "Oh, I'll get married and I'll solve your problems," or read the Quran and I'll solve your problems, and all kinds of other things. Or, the, you know, it's from the jinn, so you have to expel a jinn somehow or some, have mm -hmm. some kind of exorcism. Um, it's interesting. I actually did a research on that. So my my thesis at uni um, was about help-seeking behavior in the Muslim world, or in the Muslim world here in Australia, so the Muslims in Australia. And it was particular for Shia as well, so the Shia congregants of Australia. And it was mm -hmm. working off the back of a previous research that looked at ulama. And mm -hmm. with ulama, they looked at where they think um, mental illness stems from. So what's the etiology of, of mental illness, right? And they looked at, I believe they looked at schizophrenia and depression. So schizophrenia mm -hmm. being like hallucinations and all of that and something that would be classified as severe in the general public and maybe depression won't, so... That's how they, mm -hmm. that's why they chose those two. And it was interesting that, yes, the ulama did say that there was a religious perspective to the ideology of these mental illnesses, but they also acknowledged a biological and environmental factors. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the congregants, they, they seem to think the ideology is more religious based. And uh, I think it was like 42% mentioned that jinn have a significant role in the ideology. Wow, 42%. Yeah. I was like, wow. that was very high. And um, it was very interesting seeing this. And then w some of the questions were also about if you did experience this type of mental illness, who would you go? And then there was a list of options and they, were, they would rate which option, you know, whether or not the likelihood of going to each option. So, it was a long time ago, but I think one of them was religious scholars. One of them was like a psych psychologist, a GP, so their uh, doctor, um, friend, family, and a few others. And mm -hmm. it was interesting that a lot of them said Islamic scholars. And yes. They did also say, like, for schizophrenia, they did say going to the doctor or a psychologist more than they did depression. So they recognize that that would be more serious and I have to do that. But mm -hmm. it was very interesting, like the results of this study. So it gave me more of a picture of how, how you know, Shias in this country at least think, you know, and yeah. about mental illness. 
And with regards Mm -hmm. to scholars, it was interesting that a lot of times the scholar will be the first point of of help, right? So the scholars are in a very important role there. That in the U, we have similar we have similar um, rates as well. Where mm-hmm. I actually read the other day, ninety five percent of Muslims would go to a religious scholar before going to a mental health provider to treat a, a mental health related wow. concern. That's so huge, ninety five percent. You know, and I don't think because um, I, you know, I don't want to tell people, hey, don't go, don't go to your religious scholar or whatever. I, I think it highlights the need to work together, that yes. mental health in the community and our religious scholars, we need to work together. We need to be on the same page and speaking the same lingo um, to get people the help that they need. And, and we need both, right? Both are very important in the lives of Muslims. And, and that's why, like, you know, a lot, most, all my clients are Muslim and they call me and they say, you know, Sister Nisa, I'm living in a place where I can't find a Muslim counselor. I recognize I need the psychological piece. I need to rewire my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really need someone who understands the Islamic context because I'm going to these non-Muslim counselors and I spend half the time trying to explain my faith to them and you know it's it's they just don't get it they're missing a huge piece um, you know not to say a non-Muslim counselor can't also be helpful but for Muslims it's it's your life I mean it's a it's a way of life it's a big part of life so if that piece is missing you know that's why we see that 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 trend of so many going Definitely. to the scholars it Definitely, just highlights 100%. the I wonder mm-hmm. I know here in Australia there's um a Sunni body of uh, scholars oh. called uh, Anik, and they've mm-hmm. actually run mental health first aid courses for the scholars mm-hmm. to be able to recognize when someone comes to them whether or not yes. this is serious and they should be you know referred to a, uh, someone who's qualified to deal with it um, mm-hmm. amongst the Shia ulama we don't have anything like that but mm-hmm. I know it's something that that needs to happen because I know like I... For, for instance I know I was I was talking to to a person in one of the centers a couple of years back and mm-hmm. he came to me and he was like I don't know what's going on but when I'm praying I could, I feel that there's something behind me and I look behind mm-hmm. me and I could like it was a, a visual hallucination as well so like he was able to see like a a figure or a light or something of that mm-hmm. nature like he described it as some kind of spiritual being right mm-hmm. but that spiritual being being made him uncomfortable as well so it wasn't mm-hmm. like an angel that's blessing him it was something that was making him feel uncomfortable and i was like okay and this was a late teenager so he's uh, 17 years old at that time i think and then he i i asked him a little bit more and i say is this the only time when you're praying in a mass in the center that this happens he's like no sometimes when i'm in my room and i'm committing a sin he comes as well and i notice mm-hmm. him and he bothers me and like he doesn't I, he doesn't talk he doesn't give like the hallucination didn't give command so it wasn't a command hallucination but it was still mm-hmm. you know a hallucination yeah. so he comes to me as a scholar sa- saying that you know give me a dua or you know, is this a jinn? Do I need, you know, what, what's going on? Like, how, how can I get protected from this jinn and all this? And at the time, I, I wasn't a psychologist at that time, so I was still studying psychology. Mm-hmm. And I told him, all right, look, here's some here's some du'as to read, but I'm going to still 
want to talk to you further about this. And I went and I talked to some of my professors at uni and they're like, look, he, uh, it looks like he probably did uh, some drugs, probably marijuana. That's what the, mm. the person said. Like he probably just experienced marijuana and he's getting hallucinations from it. And this could be leading to schizophrenia. So he needs to get help right away. So I, I responded like, there's no way this kid's doing drugs. Like he comes to the center all the time. He's religious. He's praying. I don't think he's doing drugs. She's like, you got to ask him. I said, how do I ask him? Like, it's such an awkward conversation to have. And she gave me some pointers. So I went to him. I said, but, you know, brother, it's, uh, just question here. Have you smoked marijuana or anything? And he's like, yeah, you know, it's bad. I did. I said, did these hallucinations come right afterwards? He's like, yeah. So not, it's not only when he's intoxicated, but like they, they came right afterwards. And marijuana has actually been found in some teenagers to uh, spark schizophrenia in those who are right. already susceptible to it. So those who have the um, gen genetic influence of the, you know. Yeah. 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 So very interesting. And yeah. If I, were, if I didn't study psychology, there's no way I would have put those two together and he wouldn't have got the help that he needed. But because I was able to, to recognize that, I was able to refer him over to a psychologist that could help. And inshallah, he, I didn't follow up with him afterwards, but inshallah, he did get that help. At least yeah, the potential I, for him to get the help was there. So it's really right. important. It happens all the time. It is. I, I mean, I remember being in the same boat when I was studying psychology and I was doing my master's where... I had a point where I was, I, I think I was attending some kind of um, substance abuse workshop. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, like, oh, you know, we're just so lucky as a Muslim community. Like, this is already haram. We don't have to really worry about this problem too much. And, you know, then I got out into the real world and started working with Muslim clients. And I'm like, whoa, I was way wrong. I mean, this is a it's a, an issue going on, but we were so good at sweeping it under the rug in the community. We don't talk about these taboo issues. We don't make safe spaces to really address it. And that's, you know, that's why it's so hard to ask as well, because it's like you don't even expect that that's going to be part of somebody's narrative. But it, it's very important to ask. And I was reading another statistic the other day that like 25 percent of Muslim college students have um, been experimenting with with alcohol, have, you know, yeah. do do get their first drink of alcohol um, when they start college and and develop begin to develop a problem with it even. So yeah. it's yeah, it's it's definitely a problem in our community that we don't talk enough. In Australia, big time as well. It's you know, drugs and drug use and even selling drugs is becoming. A very big problem not becoming it's been a problem for a while i know um like i remember when i first came here the the demographics of australia are very different than the states right so one of the races that is still known but i guess maybe a few years ago was more known to be a race that commits more crimes and they're overrepresentative in the penal system and all of that is the lebanese race so mm. you have so People are, you know, afraid of Lebanese people and they negatively stereotype them for being criminals and drug dealers mm -hmm. and gang members and things of that nature. 
and then Islam, and then you know Islam on top of that as well. So you get it from both sides for the <laughs> the Lebanese oh, yeah. community here. Um, mm -hmm. But it was interesting. I remember when I first came here. So this was years ago, and there was a a question like, should masjids accept donations from drug dealers? Like this was a question that was on the minds of the community because there's so many people selling drugs and they make money selling drugs and then they want to donate to the masjid. They're like, should the masjid accept that? And it, it's crazy that that was even, you know, a topic of conversation and it shows how serious this problem is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not, obviously, it's not only the Shia community, the Sunni community as well. And I know the Sunni community has been very active in trying to combat this. So I actually, I had a, Another sister before you, um, Nasreen Hanifi, who's my clinical supervisor as well. And she runs an organization called the Hyatt House here in, mm. in Australia. And it's funded 100% by the Muslim community. And it provides free drug and alcohol addiction services. So wow. Muslims who you know, are addicted to either alcohol or whatever drug they're addicted to, will be able to go there and receive free help, right? So inshallah in the Shia world, we could do that as well. But uh, yeah. but it's definitely Sorry. one of the areas that I want to concentrate on is, is addiction. So not only drugs and alcohol, but various types of addiction because the treatment is similar in all, in all types of addiction. And mm -hmm. I, just, I just feel that there's a huge need in the communities because with drugs, alcohol, and even gambling. So here, gambling is... Uh, more legal than it is in the states so it's not only in vegas or whatever but so they have yeah. they have casinos everywhere and sports betting places everywhere and it's becoming a huge issue where people are losing you know their their livelihood because of it there's there's a sister that i was seeing and she was young a teenager and she has to work to provide money for her mom and siblings because her father blows every check in the casino. How tragic. That's, yeah. yeah that's bad. But it, it is more common than we think. And it's just, it's well hidden. Um, these issues, I mean, obviously, they don't come out. These families don't come out and announce it to the people in the masjid. On the outside, you know, a lot of my clients who are struggling with gambling issues or um, drug addiction will say, you know, on the outside, we're so well respected. People think we're this amazing family and they don't know how much we're struggling behind the scenes and what's really happening. And, and they feel disgusted because that's it, it creates identity issues in the clients like, you know, they want to have their. Islam, you know, that they want to identify with Islam, but then they've got these conflicting relationships happening within the household and within themselves. And so it's like they don't know who they are or where they're going anymore. But it is, it's one of those marijuana, especially now that that has been legalized in, in the U.S. and just every state, you know, a lot of Muslims are engaging in it more and more. And you know, it's one thing if a doctor says you need that medicinally to help you with something, but people are just, you know, willy-nilly getting it um, just for recreational purposes, saying, oh, well, I think I do need it for, for medicinal purposes, even though they don't. Yeah, so it's creating a lot of confusion. And yeah. it is. With a lot of young males, especially between 18 and 24, that's when 
they be, schizophrenia begins to manifest in, in young males. And so if they're beginning to experiment with drugs and, and especially during those early college years, they're, they're setting themselves up for a potential long-term mental illness that, I mean, it, you can't, once you have schizophrenia, that's, that's, you can't really recover from that. You can take medication that will help with the hallucinations and, you know, the auditory, the visual, um, you know, different stimuli that are going on, but it's, it's a lifelong problem. hundred mm, percent. I remember I went to um, Seattle uh, to give some lectures. I think it was around Arba'in. So I was, I was invited there. Um, and I was supposed to go for five years in a row, but visa issues from various countries didn't allow that to happen. And also um, I was studying at uni and I wasn't able to take the breaks, but I went, I think once or twice, and it was a great community there. And I remember there was a question and answer session and they were talking about drugs and, uh, mm-hmm. and marijuana because I think they had just legalized it there at that time. And in in California as well, they legalized it. So in the community there that I'm involved with, there was all kinds of questions. And it was very interesting, the questions that one of the brothers was saying, the reason why marijuana is haram is because it's illegal in the country and it's haram to break the law of the land that you're in. Now that they're legalized it, so it's not illegal anymore, so we can smoke. And I'm like, no, brother, that's not why. That's not why it's haram. Like it's there's although obviously the negative, you know, or like the intoxication levels don't don't equal alcohol or cocaine or whatever. Right. There's still levels of intoxication that occur and there's still like for a segment of the population, there's hallucinations, there's, you know, panic attacks and anxiety that occur. There's all kinds of serious problems that could stem from marijuana use. And, you know, it was it then became a, a conversation of what is intoxication and that's actually a very interesting conversation when you look at it through Islamic jurisprudence, because you have to define what it is and then and then try to figure out what falls under the banner of that definition. And there's various opinions, obviously, but uh, we won't get into that here. But it was, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation, but I think all ulama that I've seen have said that it's haram, like all, all of the muraja have issued fatwa saying it's haram. I know Sayyid Khamenei very clearly, Sayyid Sistani, I know in the, either in his Farsi or Arabic section of the website, he mm-hmm. he has a, a fatwa about hashish, which is mm-hmm. similar to marijuana, but I didn't see anything in the English one. At, at least I haven't, I haven't looked at it in a few years, but it mm-hmm. might be there. And I know other ulama have similar issues or mm-hmm. fatwa. So mm-hmm. I don't know where they get the legalization. I guess they just want to, want to smoke it or experience it. Right. Yeah. And then try to justify it for themselves that there's no specific hadith about it. So, yeah, yeah. I think the thing is, a lot of young people think they, they're just going to experiment and they're young and they want to be happy in the moment and try something out. And, you know, they want to. It's hard. Be, I get it. It's hard being Muslim and it's hard being different sometimes and standing out for your beliefs. I do get that. But what people don't realize is that one, you know, fun night of experimenting has 
long-term consequences that, and, and that's the problem is when people engage in these substances, they're not thinking about long-term. They're thinking about, I just want to be happy right now, or I want to suppress whatever pain or trauma I, I'm going through. I don't want to feel uncomfortable anymore. And we need to teach people that, you know, discomfort is a part of life and it's okay to sit with your, um, your, your discomfort and to be uncomfortable. That's how you grow. That's how you overcome obstacles. Yes. Mm -hmm. It might mean you don't have a big group of buddies. That's okay. You know, who do you, why we don't need those buddies. You, you, you have a less upon on your side when you're saying no to these things. You have the, you know, the NBA, the Ahlul Bayt, the Malaika on your side when you're saying no to things that aren't good for you. And you reap the, the positive consequences of your actions, you know. Mm. When you do good, you do it for yourself. Yeah, that's right. All right, so you mentioned one thing a while back, that all your services are online now and that you're yeah. rendering services to people all over the world who, who need your help, which yeah. is great. Alhamdulillah. I know recently I had experience of uh, trying to conduct sessions online and mm -hmm. because I didn't, I didn't really have any experience and it just happened right away, that it was difficult. Like face-to-face -face is a lot easier for me than online is. Um, but inshallah, you know, it's always, it's a learning curve and you could always improve, but I wanted to, mm -hmm. to ask you what, what is the process that you have? Like, what, what do you do if someone, if someone wants to get in contact with you, how do they get in contact with you? What kind of services do you provide for people? Um, yeah, the whole, the whole ordeal. For sure. So if anyone wants to get in touch with me, they can go to my website, which is anisadiab.com. And there are two ways to get started. You know, either the person can uh, request a 15 minute consultation with me on the website to discuss their concerns and learn more about how I can help them and, and what the process is like. Or if they're ambitious and they just want to go ahead and get started with a session, they can, you know, go to the book a session tab and you know, purchase the session of their choice from there. But I help folks, um, yes, all over the world. I have, you know, people in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Dubai, just about everywhere. And um, I use, you know, a CBT model, like I said, mindfulness techniques. You mentioned positive psychology. I use a lot of strength-based approaches, mm -hmm. well, solution-focused approaches, um, and, you know, it's, it's, alhamdulillah, that mixture seems to work really well with, with Muslim clients. And so, yeah, that's how you get started. That's how you reach out. I work with people of anxiety and depression. Those are the top two reasons that people come to see me. Um, a lot of folks who are getting out of divorce uh, or relationship loss is a big one. Um, parents who are struggling uh, with that intergenerational gap of, of raising their children in this country and not sure how to help them. So I, I work with parents, I work with the children as well who might be struggling with Islamophobia or just you know struggling with school, whatever might be going on for them. Um, grief. So it's, you know, we, we start, it, it's, it's nice when you get to have the conversation, the consult ahead of time. If it is severe, you know, like somebody is um, actively suicidal, right? Or, or somebody's in a domestic violence situation where their life is on the line. Um, those are situations where I might, I would refer people to face to face. So virtual is not 
doesn't always work for every single person, but um, I got to say, I've had the best of all three worlds. So I used to do face-to-face therapy on college campuses, and then I worked for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline doing crisis counseling on the phone. Um, So there was no visual whatsoever. And I've also had the, you know, the face-to-face through through Skype. And I got to say, like, sometimes there are some technical issues you have to work through a little bit, um, and we might have to find a different method of of doing the video conferencing. But for the most part, I think people enjoy it because, like you said, there's a, a lot of stigma around getting help. So it's not uncommon for my clients to be sitting in their car, just like you are right now, and kind of not wanting other people in the family to know they're getting counseling and doing counseling in the car or from work um, right when they get done. Even moms who can't, you know, leave the house and they've got their kids and they're like trying to nurse their little one and have, you know, do their self-care in the session as well. So um, I find that the approach is, I think it's going to be part of our future now, especially with the pandemic situation, more and more mental health providers are going to be using virtual technology to offer sessions. So Yeah, definitely. And they've started that here. So there's been a lot of teleconferencing um, sessions through the regulation bodies here that they've they've been doing since the COVID pandemic, and mm-hmm. some have been ex- you know some psychologists are saying that eh, the clients don't like it like at least the the older clients don't like it the younger clients mm-hmm. are are better with it and there's there's been mixed reviews and I mean obviously mm-hmm. it's not always the client it's the the psychologist as well you know how they adapt to it and how they're able to communicate and kind of connect through with the client through this means. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's actually, it's pretty interesting. Um, when, when I was doing it online, I had, I had some clients that respond much better face to face that, you know, they, they barely respond at all when it's, when it's online and then the opposite as well. So mm-hmm. I had some clients that when it's face to face, they're less talkative and they don't open up as much, but then when it's online, they just, they open, they open up. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was a very interesting experience. Um, mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to look into what you're doing and, and maybe try to replicate it a bit. It looks, it, it looks very interesting, and there's, there's a huge need, definitely. Um, and this is a way that you could reach you know, Muslims who are in need from wherever they are. So they, they might mm-hmm. be in a small town like you said you're from, and there's just no Muslim counselor there. They, they don't have yeah. that option. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons the impetus that I had for starting this is when I was younger, I wished I had somebody to talk to um, who had, a, you know, I, I did talk to non-Muslim counselors who were fine, but I had always wished I had, you know, a Muslim counselor to reach out to. And I just, I never had that support growing up. And so my goal was to try to be accessible to, to folks who need that kind of mental health, psychological support, support while still incorporating Islam into it and um, and and science and mm. mindfulness and all those different techniques. Yeah. You mentioned mindfulness as well. Um, mindfulness is very interesting. It's something that I've been looking at a lot. And it's kind of like a buzzword in, in the field of psychology recently. Uh, not recently, <laughs> recently, in the last couple of decades, that it's been, it's becoming so popularized. And mm. it seems that it has, you know, Eastern sources for it so it seems like they're trying to incorporate like a a buddhist or 
Eastern ideology into their practice um, mm -hmm. through like through meditation, meditation. But then when I was mm -hmm. looking at Islam, I was looking at uh, prayer. I was looking at the salat that we do. And there's so much emphasis in a hadith that we have from the imams and from the prophet about being mindful in prayer, about yeah. recognizing what you're doing, right? So when yeah. you stand and face the qibla, you should be you know, aware of who it is you're standing in front of. And there's mm -hmm. a hadith that the, the imams, when they would stand and face the qibla, their, you know, the color of their skin would change and they would shake mm -hmm. and they would sweat. And you mm -hmm. could tell that it was a huge moment for them, just mm -hmm. kind of directing all of their energy and focusing on Allah mm -hmm. and then yeah. um, every aspect of the prayer ruku signifies this and think about mm -hmm. it this way when you're in, when you're in sujood you know this is the the uh, you know the, the highest point of the moment and this is mm -hmm. this is that position and like there's all kinds of um, tips and encouragement to really focus on every little aspect of what you're doing and being mindful and not to let your try not to let your mind wander and try not to be oblivious of what you're doing when you're doing it and concentrate on the words and all that and that's mindfulness right? like, yeah for sure yeah yeah and you know, it's beautiful it, it is like you're right when we think of mindfulness a lot of people's minds go to buddhism and, and other eastern practices that are not rooted in islam but mindfulness is a very central concept to islam i mean prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam was in a state of mindfulness and meditation in ghar al-hira in that in the cave angel gabriel came and gave that first revelation of iqra right mm. so took time to um, to experience solitude. You know, we don't have an Islam monasticism where we just stay away from society and we go in our cave for years and years or whatever. But, you know, we do need to have these moments of solitude where we are present with ourselves. We're not worrying about the future. We're not worrying about the past. We're just, we're in the here and now. And I think that's why a lot of people struggle with salat is because you do have to be mindful. Otherwise you start forgetting which, you know, which rakad you were on, you start making mistakes. Um, a lot of people tell me, you know, I just, a minute I pray, I start thinking about a million other things. And it's because we're not accustomed to just being, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, Allah created us as human beings, not human doings, but we get so up in that hamster wheel that now when Allah says, okay, it's time to focus on me, it's it's hard to do, but we have to train our minds to get grounded so that we can have a better relationship with Allah. And that's what meditation is all about. It's just about grounding you in the present um, moment. And so that you can you can think with clarity, not just in your salat, but in, in other aspects of your life too. It's amazing. So Alhamdulillah, I was, I was able to uh, find you. I when when you just did that hijab video for me, so thank you so much for that. That we just recently published on our site. And what I did is I just randomly on Facebook, just the first fifty sisters that wear hijab, I just sent them a message. Hey, can you give me this one video? And it, and you happened to be one of them. And then you responded. And then I saw on your on, on Facebook that you're a. Uh, um, faith-based counselor. I was like, wow, ooh, look at this. And then alhamdulillah, it was great that I was able to meet you and um, become aware of the great work that you're doing Thank randomly you. in this in this way. 
Well, you know, I always say nothing is random. I, I think Allah brings people together, connects people for a reason. And I've been um, honored, you know, to hear your story and the contributions that you have been making to your community. And I mean, may Allah bless all the work that you're doing and, and all these important efforts and goals that you have because it's, it's so important. And the fact that you have both worlds, you know, the psychology and the, the Islamic background with your Hausa studies. I mean, what an amazing combination. And um, I'm sure that the youth that you're impacting are, are really appreciating your your perspectives. Inshallah. And so it's actually from the Hausa, one of the reasons why I studied psychology is because I felt that, look, people come to me with marriage problems, with you know all kinds of issues and i'm not qualified to deal with them like in the house mm -hmm. i learned i learned arabic grammar i learned i learned mm -hmm. all about islamic law and jurisprudence and aqaid and akhlaq you could there's a lot of akhlaq you could insert into psychology obviously but mm -hmm. there's there's a gap of you know you're not trained in dealing with mental health issues you, you, we haven't mm -hmm. received that training in the house but people do see that seem to come to us for it. So mm -hmm. I was like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to study because I wanted to study something after Hausa. Right. So when I was in high school, wasn't the best of students. And then after I converted to Islam, I decided to go to Hausa and I was there for 10 years. And then I said, all right, you know, I want to come back, but I want I need to, you know, get some academic um at least experience the academic side of, of the West as well. So I know where mm -hmm. people are coming from and I know, like I'm aware of the different academic discussions that are happening. More from just like, I was doing a lot of self-study, but I wanted more structure to it. So I was trying to figure out, all right, maybe philosophy, seeking maybe law. But I said, you know, psychology has, is the best fit because mm -hmm. people will co people come to me and with the background in psychology, I could use some of the, you know, at least some of the pragmatic tools to be able to, mm -hmm. to, you know, aid my discussions with them. And then I fell in love with psychology and neuropsychology and just all aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been studying. So like every, mo every morning I wake up and I, I find research articles on positive psychology, psychometric testing, everything. I read a few articles a day and just try to keep increasing my knowledge on the field and trying to figure out new ways to incorporate it and incorporate like Islam into it. Because I feel, mm -hmm. as you said, like ilm nafs the knowledge of the self. And I feel obviously anything that, that would be effective for the human being, Islam has, you know, pointed to it somewhere. And we just have mm -hmm. to find it and figure out how to, how to, implemented on a practical level so it's actually it's very interesting but thank you so much for accepting this invitation and being here i benefited a lot from your talk and inshallah those who listen to it will benefit as well and inshallah we'll be in touch and work together more in the future so Allah bless you again for having me and i i look forward to future collaboration inshallah what you haven't subscribed yet mate get on the ball subscribe to the channel